2: Race to Value listeners, this is Eric Weaver, and I wanted to tell you about the North Star for value. What is that exactly? Well, it's making sure that not only do we have improvement in costs, but we have improvement in outcomes for everyone. We must eliminate disparities across race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. The Institute for Advancing Health Value is bringing to you a virtual summit for leaders advancing health equity through value-based care. On November 30th, we're going to be screening the Color of Care documentary, which is uh, an important documentary that really shows the systemic issues we have in our society. And then on December 1st, we're going to have a full day of discussions that are really centered around how do we create health equity in our country
0: This is Daniel Chipping, and we, the Institute, are so excited to bring this great event to you. We've got an incredible lineup of speakers, including Dr. Dora Hughes, the Chief Medical Officer at CMMI, Anish Chopra, the former U.S. Chief Technology Officer, and Dr. Olewila, the Chief Health Equity Officer at Humana. We're gonna be covering topics that span everything that you need to know about health equity and value-based care, including gender-affirming care, AI, data solutions, and so much more. We really hope to see you there. And
2: don't miss out on this important event, Population Health Equity, the North Star for Value, a free virtual summit with everything that you need to know to advance health equity in your organization. Go to the link in the summary of this week's episode to learn more and register for this upcoming event. Race to Value listeners, this month is COPD Awareness Month. And did you know That chronic obstructive pulmonary disease impacts 24 million adults. It's the third leading cause of death and the fifth most costly chronic disease in the U.S. And care for COPD is fragmented and inconsistent. And it's because of this extremely flawed fee-for-service reimbursement system. I mean, we see how this chronically ill population with COPD is continually subjected to poor clinical outcomes and high economic burden. I mean, right now, we have over $49 billion in direct patient costs for COPD. It's an economic burden that's unsustainable. Patients that have this chronic condition and experience an exacerbation can go into the hospital and have a $40,000 or more admission. And we must commit as leaders in value-based care to bring the cost trajectory trend line down. Joining us this week is Jeff Matus, the president and CCO of WellLinks, a digital health company offering the first ever integrated virtual chronic obstructive pulmonary disease management solution. And with him is Dr. Abby Sandura-Morti, a chief medical officer at WellLinks. They have such a an expert level of insight when it comes to managing this complex chronically ill population. It, we're so honored to have them on the show this week. So if you like what you hear on the show, definitely go to racetovalue.org, subscribe to our newsletter, and we would love a review or a five-star rating on your selected podcast platform of choice. And without further ado, let me go ahead and bring Jeff and Dr. Abby as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Jeff and Dr. Abby, welcome to the Race to Value. I could not be more excited with this month being COPD Awareness Month to have this really important discussion about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and how we can truly make an impact with value-based care.
1: Pleasure to be here, Eric. Nice to meet with you today.
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here with Dr. Abbey to speak with you and Daniel. And this is a topic that we
2: care deeply about and are looking forward to the next hour with you. Well, Jeff and Dr. Abbey, as we begin our conversation today, I'm just thinking about COPD. You know, it represents the third leading cause of death, and it's the fifth most costly chronic disease in the U.S. And care for this chronic condition is fragmented and inconsistent. We continue to see care with this chronically ill population wrought with poor clinical outcomes, and a high economic burden for society, and COPD is what's known as an ambulatory care sensitive condition for which good outpatient care potentially prevents the need for hospitalization or for which early intervention can prevent complications or more severe disease. However, at this time where policymakers and the public are demanding better outcomes from the healthcare system, medical management, Of chronic disease and ACOs and other other risk-bearing entities continue to focus more on other ambulatory care-sensitive conditions like congestive heart failure or diabetes. And this month is COPD Awareness Month, and I really wanted to have you both on the podcast to discuss how we can better structure interventions in a patient-centric, physician-aligned care management model to overcome the fragmentation and poor incentives that continue to, to discourage coordinated cost-effective care for this often neglected patient population. And as our industry transitions to value-based care, we must overcome these challenges in COPD being underdiagnosed and undertreated as a condition as, because it's such a major cause of morbidity and mortality in our country. So what is it about COPD that makes it so less prone for population health management within ACOs and other risk-bearing entities? compared to some of the interventions that we see with other chronic diseases? And then also, what should ACOs and MA plans be prioritizing in terms of planning for COPD and the next wave of chronic diseases that they're looking to address?
1: That's a great question. And if we think about sort of the evolution of value-based care, um, and as providers and, and health systems in particular learn more and more about the incentive model, you know, it boiled down into sort of three big pillars. Um, you've got the pillar around coding and documentation from a revenue perspective. You've got the pillar around KEDIS and other quality metrics that are important. And then you've got the, the pillar around cost reduction, uh, usually driven through reduction in unnecessary acute care utilization. The first two that were mentioned, uh, the, the coding and documentation and hitting the KEDIS metrics from a provider perspective or slightly easier um, than the cost reduction approach. They're a little bit more prescriptive in terms of what needs to be accomplished uh, to be able to, to hit those metrics. So I think that, you know, over time, we've gotten used to learning about these things and providers and health systems have become more and more proficient at um, hitting the quality and the HEDIS metrics, as well as improving coding and documentation. There's been a huge focus on that. Getting to the third pillar, it's it's very difficult to drive that pillar mainly because of the behavior change that's needed to be able to reduce that unnecessary utilization. So COPD lends itself very well to that third pillar um, because it, it really is less so around the risk adjustment and the ketis metrics that tend to focus on some of those diseases that are intertwined, the ones that you just mentioned earlier, like heart failure, which has several different types of coding and, and hypertension, diabetes, et cetera. But really in the COPD world, about 70% of costs that COPD delivers is through that acute care utilization. So it it's it's a little bit more complex in terms of uh, driving down costs there. When health systems and, and providers do focus on costs, there's another component to it, right? When we look at those disease processes that offer sort of big dollar reduction. So if you think about where value-based care, at least on the hospital side, really focused in its earlier time, it was on sort of ortho bundles. You see a lot of dollars there, CKD, ESKD, but a lot of that is lives in the unit cost piece of it. Whereas um, we really want to try to focus on utilization as much as possible. Um, it is Low-hanging fruit. So I think, from a COPD perspective, it is a significant opportunity that's been untouched and in a space, even from a clinical perspective and a disease process all off on its own, that may have uh, not been attended to as much as we had hoped. But it, it definitely gives us an opportunity at this time to start focusing on that when we look at this vulnerable patient population. So here at Welllinks, you know, we're we're really um, taking this opportunity to drive better outcomes for this vulnerable population through our particular model.
3: And maybe I can share a little bit from the perspective of the business. And as Dr. Abby mentioned, the space, I think both clinically and also on in the innovation landscape, has remained somewhat untouched. And I always find us asking the question of why. Why is it still day one for COPD care innovation at scale uh, when there are other models focused on other disease processes that are further along? And I often go back to thinking about the buyers of healthcare and where incentive for innovation has a home. And if we look at the field of virtual first care or, or digital health or health tech, you kind of catch all in that bucket, it's been largely employer focused. So, in an employed population where you have less than 1% to 2% prevalence of COPD, it's understandable why that's not top of mind for the chief human resource officer when they're structuring a benefits package for their employees. But in the world of accountable care organizations and Medicare Advantage plans, we're looking at a 12 to 15% prevalence depending on the location. So there's an awful lot of incentive to build programs and address COPD by those buyers of healthcare. So we believe that the time is now, the COPD space is, is ripe for innovation. We see that virtual first care can yield terrific results in other disease states, we'll talk a little bit later, hopefully, about why we believe uh, the same can be true in COPD. And ultimately, we see models like what we're advancing have the ability to meet patients where they are, optimize those tricky handoffs between care settings, uh, and ultimately go back to patient-centered innovation, which, as Dr. Abby often talks about, is where value-based care really begins.
0: Dr. Abby, Jeff, thank you for that setup. This is a perfect start to the conversation. Really ap- appreciate you painting this picture. And I want to continue by saying in 2010, costs attributed to COPD were $21 billion, And it's since increased to over $49 billion in just the last decade. And a large part of that burden of illness are these exacerbations that require continued hospital admissions that can cover 40000 per hospitalization. And the entire medical community needs to start thinking about the hospitalization frequency in COPD because 75% of the total direct disease cost is tied to these exacerbations. And ACOs and health plans have begun instituting aggressive care management programs to reduce inpatient admissions for COPD. However, to the point we discussed earlier, we haven't been able to make a significant impact in disrupting utilization patterns, in tailoring interventions to improve outcomes in this population. And while it's a multifactorial phenomenon, One factor is inefficient transitions of care or the movement of patients between healthcare practitioners and care settings as their condition or needs change. An effective integrated COPD care management, though, has been shown to make an important difference. It can support patients in efforts to self-manage their disease by encouraging smoking cessation and healthy lifestyle behaviors. It can provide routine patient monitoring to assess ongoing treatment goals and promote medication adherence. And since chronic care management can make an impact in improving clinical outcomes and reducing costs, the industry is in desperate need for a scalable solution that combines devices, software, health coaching, and pulmonary rehab to reach better coordination of care. And can you discuss how chronic care management programs work to more effectively manage COPD patients? And how can value based care incentives and care delivery innovation? improve the COPD patient journey and prevent these unnecessary utilizations leading to avoidable ED visits and hospitalizations for these complex patients.
1: Yeah, Daniel, you know, aligning incentives is is a very important motivator in order for us to start moving in the right direction. So I think it's important to sort of trigger provider practices as well as health systems especially looking at the way you know, health systems are going right now, how do we create almost that alternative source of revenue, but one that takes you in a strategic direction where we believe um, healthcare is going at this time? And then I think the second big piece of this is health systems are not naturally engineered with the infrastructure, all of which you just alluded to, to be able to provide necessarily that continuous and comprehensive disease management that's needed to drive down utilization in this cohort of patients. So partnering with solutions such as ours can be very effective in terms of you know, the, that mutual benefit that we're looking for ultimately in the in the best interest of the patient. So you know as you mentioned, those statistics and the costs that are associated with hospitalization of these patients, I think one important statistic that we need to all um, keep coming back to because it unifies us. And when I say us, I mean, it unifies providers, uh, vendors like us, hospital systems and patients is that um, after that acute care utilization that occurs with an exacerbation, as high as 43% of those patients within the first year post-discharge will die. That's the statistic. So this is, I think, more than the incentive model that we're operating under, but also the mission. Um, that we we all cohesively are operating under, and why we we went into this this profession in the first place. We're looking here at Welllinks to really offer a solution to help payers, providers, patients to be able to do better for this uh, cohort of patients and and really drive quality of life. Um, so some of the things that we incorporate, I, c- I can tell you, is that routine patient monitoring. You know, how can at home we get the the devices that we would normally use in a a hospital setting or a provider setting to be able to tell how the patient's doing, identify deterioration very early on so that we can intervene early on in a a higher touch model in the home and not have them end up crashing into the hospital. Uh, Medication adherence, so for example, in COPD, medication adherence related issues are the top drivers of utilization. And sometimes it's not even that the patient it's usually never that the patient wasn't prescribed the right medication. Um, most often it's that the patient doesn't know how to use their medication. Inhalers are very complicated. There's a specific skill set. Uh, the coach or, or the clinician who might teach the patient how to use an inhaler. And another one is in, inhaler affordability. Um, all things that you know we really focus on as interventions. Self-management and activation, that's a key component. I think you mentioned that as well. A lot of this is about behavior change. Uh, COPD is a disease process that is highly regulated by changes in behavior, smoking cessation being one of them. Uh, that is a key focus area um, that, that we deliver in our interventions. Uh, things like airway clearance and oxygen use, which are important components of pulmonary rehab. Here at Welllinks, we like to call it pulmonary health because oftentimes pulmonary rehab is prescribed to patients that have deteriorated already Um, But we really look at a preventative approach to this. So as part of pulmonary health, we want to make sure that, you know, patients are are learning how to de-escalate if they're anxious, um, how to use their oxygen appropriately, the right types of breathing techniques so they don't go into exacerbation, physical activity and other types of lifestyle modification or interventions that we deliver, and then social determinants of health, Um, definitely not to be underrepresented. Those are clinical workflows that we have built into our program. So that we can make sure that patients are plugged into the right resources in order to drive that care delivery and make sure that we have optimal outcomes. Oftentimes, these interventions don't neatly fit into the fee-for-service infrastructure that exists now in hospitals and health systems as well as provider practices. So, really, learning to make that move towards value-based care, or as as Jeff had mentioned, it patient-based care, uh, mainly for the earlier statistic that I just mentioned, uh, will be an important one, and I think collaboration um, between companies like ours, providers, patients is really what's going to get us to that, that end point.
3: So, so we, in our, in our go-to-market motion, speak with health plans. We speak with the kind of care organizations and we speak with health systems. So we really get a 360 view uh, because there's a common problem across all of those entities um, looking for a solution. So. Recently had a conversation with a clinical leader at a, a very large health system that deals with an awful lot of COPD. They said that these programs, like that you mentioned, Daniel, things that include health coaching, behavioral support, smoking cessation, what I like to call these, these wraparound programs that help the individual in self-management, a lot like what we focus on doing here, they get launched, they show results, and they die out. Why? because at a health system it's often a hero project or it's something that relies on grant funding. And I think it's important for us to call to action the payer community and uh, the buy side of healthcare to say, how can we create durability and longevity in those programs? Because we know they can be successful. We know it's the right thing to do for our patients. And we know it's the kind of program and, and intervention that can improve outcomes, lower cost of care, drive to better quality, Uh, And provide a better experience for everyone involved. So um, as we go through this conversation, I keep on wanting to come back to that call to action to just think a little bit differently. What can we do outside of the standard playbook for managing COPD or other chronic conditions that exist today within the walls of the health system?
2: Let's now talk about how do we manage comorbidities with this chronic condition. We see that many COPD patients have other comorbidities that need to be addressed. I mean, those include hypertension, CAD, diabetes, disorders of lipid metabolism, fluid and electrolyte disorders, cardiac arrhythmias, esophageal disorders, osteoporosis, pneumonia. Uh, There's just so many to name, and it's been estimated that 99% of COPD patients have one comorbid condition, 87% of COPD patients have three or more. Furthermore, behavioral health conditions are really common in patients with COPD with up to 40% of patients experiencing depression and anxiety. And these multiple underlying comorbidities present with COPD in a devastating way. I mean, for example, in patients with COPD and heart failure, an exacerbation may aggravate heart failure. And it's evident that COPD is a complex disease to manage, especially in the presence of so many serious comorbidities. So can you clarify on why addressing these comorbidities alone are not enough to improve COPD exacerbations? I mean, how can a targeted disease management program specifically for COPD provide a more holistic and overall effective model of care that addresses the totality of care needs?
1: Yeah, Eric, I I think that's a great question, and it it uncovers a, a distinction um, a clinical dis- distinction when it comes to these different uh, disease processes. So many, not all, but many of the, the diseases that you just mentioned, you can think of them as sort of they're linear along one path in the sense that they're causative. So for example, hypertension and and diabetes, they're comorbidities that lead to chronic kidney disease. And then end-stage kidney disease. This makes certain disease processes what we call secondary cost drivers. So by managing the comorbidities, you can delay disease progression or stop disease progression and ultimately drive that overall cost down. COPD is different from those other diseases that were mentioned. It isn't linear, but it can happen in parallel. And that's why we see it as a comorbidity or in conjunction with these other disease processes um COPD is is more of a primary cost driver in the sense that you know there are some underlying behaviors or irritants that have occurred that are not traditional medical diseases that have led to the COPD process um and now really honing in on the COPD and the specific behaviors that led to it are really the only thing that could drive down the cost related to that in the case of COPD that's most often smoking. But then as you mentioned earlier, you know, having some other behavioral issues such as depression, anxiety can lead to worsening behaviors that can cause the disease to progress quicker or for a patient to become non-compliant and end up in the hospital again. So the core of our model is really designed around driving better behaviors, so we can drive better outcomes in that COPD space. In the short term, those outcomes would be reducing unnecessary ED visits and hospital utilization. In the long term, those outcomes would be delaying disease progression, if not halting it altogether by uh, changing those behaviors. Having said that, as I had said earlier, we understand that they happen in parallel with other disease processes, such as hypertension, diabetes, CKD, and other coronary issues that may show up. So the way our model is designed is holistic in the sense that when we notice that there are gaps in these other disease processes, although they're not the ones that are driving the COPD outcomes, we do have clinical workflows that are designed to help with care coordination for those patients back into the resources that are built out for those disease processes. Um, You know, our goal is really to be that person that that holds that patient's hand throughout their journey, given that COPD is their primary problem, making sure that all of the the other healthcare touch points that need to be had are available to the patient and that we're really activating and motivating them to get involved in all aspects of their health.
0: So given the substantial economic and social burden on the healthcare system, health policy leaders and health plans need to develop improved COPD-specific payment models to better align incentives for improved patient care outcomes. And if we look outside of the U.S. for an example, In Taiwan, a nationwide COPD pay-for-performance program was designed to introduce financial incentives for healthcare providers employing a multidisciplinary team to deliver guideline-based integrated care for patients with COPD. In the few years since the implementation of that program, they've seen a decrease in the prevalence of COPD-related ED visits and hospitalizations. In the U.S., we've attempted to leverage the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program to address the misalignment of financial incentives that result in COPD's exacerbation. But these financial penalties were first imposed on readmissions in HRRP. Uh, since these financial penalties were first imposed on readmissions in the HRRP, there've been minimal reductions in COPD-related hospital readmissions. And there are many criticisms of this program, especially when hospitals at a certain threshold will find it more beneficial to pay the penalty instead of exerting costly efforts to reduce readmissions. When we think about the goal of disease management being to prevent exacerbations, and research shows that preventing an exacerbation will diminish the likelihood of future ones, how should payment model structures evolve to support better management of COPD? Are ACOs and the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program enough to align care improvement and cost savings for patients with COPD?
3: You know, Daniel, it's a it's a great comment on Taiwan. I think we could maybe even come a little bit closer to home and say, in the UK, um, the work that has been put in place to increase access to pulmonary rehabilitation and um, and make that a standard of care has been has been critical. You see similar results uh, in Australia, and there's a theme, right? You talk about the hospital readmissions reduction program why are we only focused on readmissions? Let's get in front of the emergency department visit. Let's get in front of that index admission. And then if there is an admission, prevent the readmission. So I think um, we have to separate the ACO conversation from the readmission reduction program because I have two different perspectives on that. But certainly the readmission reduction program standalone is not enough to take a big bite out of this problem. I think the, the overall theme here is in COPD in an any disease or healthcare in general, we have to make it as lucrative to prevent the utilization or or prevent the disease as it is to treat the disease. And I hope it's allowed to quote other podcast hosts around here, but I just love when Stacey Richter talks about financial toxicity leading to clinical toxicity. And I think that's what we see here, right? You see an incentive model where there's a question, does it make more sense for the patient to come back in and uh, build a fee for service codes for that hospitalization or uh, gain some, uh, some quality bonus on the readmission reduction program side. That shouldn't even be a question. We should be looking at how can we keep Mr. Smith and Ms. Jones home, healthy, happy, living a high quality of life. So when we think about the ACO side of that equation, I think the incentive is right in the right program. I especially love ACO reach. I think the global cap is, is uh, helpful there. and puts the onus on the provider group to make the right decisions and allocate care resources accordingly uh, to prevent the high high cost utilization. And we know it can be prevented. We've seen it not only outside the U.S. but in pockets here in the U.S. where we've seen strong innovation. Uh, And we know that there's uh, a significant amount of volume moving into those programs. So uh, I think as we see younger beneficiaries early in the disease process, moving into ACO programs, moving into Medicare Advantage, Um, that incentive for preventive care and allowing innovative tools like the ones we're trying to build uh, to be deployed as part of a member's care plan with the goal of reducing the index hospitalization or the ED visit, uh, I think that's the key for us.
1: And Daniel, I think to dovetail off of, uh, you know, Jeff's comment there, the ACO is definitely a great place to start. But I think we've seen, you know, if we take other disease examples, we've seen places where the the reach has been greater as they moved away from just admission related expenses. So you know we saw the evolution from the readmission reduction program into BPCI, which was a uh, bundle payments for care improvement advanced. Um, now those were voluntary programs, but they shed light on focus into specific disease processes. And yet still, it was related to the admission, and then the costs incurred 90 days post admission. But then, if we take one parallel uh, disease process, for example, and I, I'm going to go back to the CKD example, you know, there was a motivation across the country, really, to take that beyond the the ACO space and the hospital space into CKCC, uh, which is a program that reaches out to um, you know nephrology groups uh, out in the Outpatient setting. And now, when you have the outpatient physicians incentivized and motivated and finding solutions along with the hospitals and the ACO, it becomes a lot more synergistic in terms of what can be done for that disease group. You know, I really think that something very similar in the COPD population can be very, very beneficial if we can, you know, bring specific incentives around that disease program. Uh, into, around that disease process into the outpatient setting, whether it's with the PCPs or pulmonologists, um, I think we would gain significant traction in terms of what Jeff is talking about as well, getting ahead of the game and preventing that initial ED visit or, or admission altogether.
2: Well, one of the major flaws in the fee-for-service system that generates such poor outcomes for COPD patients is the lack of access to pulmonary rehabilitation This treatment modality is strongly recommended for people with chronic lung disease. However, approximately 40% of COPD patients in the U.S. have limited access to pulmonary rehab. I mean, there's about 18,000 patients for every one pulmonary rehab facility in the U.S., and that's a terrible dislocation of supply and demand. And reimbursement plays into this because pulmonary rehab is largely paid in a fee-for-service manner. With each session getting reimbursed around $56, not only is the reimbursement low, there are also limits to how often patients can get pulmonary rehab because providers want to limit the cost of the service. I mean, this incentive structure simply doesn't work for a chronic condition like COPD. First, no one's financially incentivized to open more PR clinics, and they can't provide longitudinal care and get paid for it. I mean, most outpatient pulmonary rehab clinics are on-site, or nearby acute care hospitals, and the CFO wants to maximize revenue per square foot, which begs the question, You know, should they build a parking garage or build an outpatient pulmonary rehab clinic? Similarly, there's little incentive for development of independent clinics by practitioners and investors. So can you elaborate on why fee-for-service reimbursement doesn't work for pulmonary rehab? What are some of the access challenges we currently see with PR clinics due to the current model of reimbursement And how can value-based payment rectify that in the long-term?
3: So imagine if we were talking about someone who just had a knee replacement, and we said that they had a 4% chance of going on to physical therapy, or someone who left the hospital after after a heart attack and said they had a 4% chance of going on to cardiac rehab. I I first think we need to be pretty bold in saying 4% uh, access to pulmonary rehabilitation post-hospitalization for COPD is unacceptable, and we need to do something about it. And we can break down uh, the barriers to access and the reasons of why that might be. And, and one of them is definitely uh, the payment model, but gosh, I mean, that's gotta change, especially when we know it is, it is effective, it's cost-effective. There was recently a, a study uh, that was run by uh, Dr. Chris Mosher down at the Duke Clinical Research Institute and colleagues published in, in JAMA, I think in July, where they showed that per patient, pulmonary rehabilitation after a hospitalization was $5,700 net cost effective, so net of reimbursement. And for the patient, it improved health, wellness, and quality of life benefits, and, and added quality adjusted life years. So we know this works. We should be all sitting around the table saying, how can we provide everyone access to it? And the thing that really gets, I think Welling's excited about the potential for us to have some small role in solving for this problem is that we know that studies have also shown that at-home or tele-rehabilitation programs or virtual programs are non-inferior to center-based pulmonary rehab. So it's why you see it as part of our model. But not only is it that shortage of centers, it's a shortage of respiratory therapists. I mean, these are the heroes that brought us through COVID-19 pandemic, and we're managing patients uh, in the ICU and weaning people off of vents. I mean, there was so much burnout because that's a tough environment to work in for that long that now those same therapists that typically would deliver care in that outpatient pulmonary rehab clinic aren't available. You know, we see across pulmonologists and nurses too. We know that people with COPD have mobility limitations and might not be able to get out of the house because they suffer from dyspnea or shortness of breath. Um, And we know that for every 10 miles, someone lives from a pulmonary rehab center, they're 50% less likely to go. So you put someone 20 miles out, you get a 25% chance of them showing up. And we started at four, by the way. So it really doesn't paint a very good picture. Uh, We know that social determinants of health are a factor here. So COPD disproportionately affects people from vulnerable communities and people have trouble just finding transportation to get to the visit. And then let's go back to that fee for service reimbursement rate. The rates are, are very low. So... It's not probably the best dollar of capital expenditure for a, a health system to build the center. And it doesn't incentivize the kind of care that really wraps around the patient and delivers better outcomes. To be clear, every pulmonary rehab center in the country that is operating today and serving patients is doing incredible work. I wish there were 18,000 of them for, per patient, right? But that's just not the truth today. And we have to start thinking about how can we rethink that model Uh, what can we do differently, and where can we have an impact? Because there are 25 million people living with this condition who really need it.
0: You know, there there are several factors that drive a tumultuous patient journey and poor outcomes in the COPD population. For care delivery to become less fragmented and reactive, we've got to find a solution to address poor medication adherence, lack of COPD education, or self-management, low access to a specialist, lack of rehab that you've just been discussing, and and continued poor lifestyle habits. And Wellleaks is a leading innovation in value-based care delivery because it offers one of the first fully, fully integrated virtual care delivery solutions aimed at empowering patients to successfully manage their COPD. I'd love for you to share your vision for how integrated virtual COPD can meet the unmet massive need for better COPD care while also driving to a positive ROI and value-based care? And how does the combination of virtual disease management, and VBC, provide the key to providing greater access to self-management and preventative
3: care to improve COPD patient care outcomes? So if we step back, um, when this company was started, you know, actually WellLynx was initially a medical device company and we had this um, really neat pocket portable nebulizer that was created by our physician founder. And that set out to solve a problem of people having access to their medications. But pretty quickly over time, we realized that that was one of the many problems and maybe wasn't the most important or the most impactful. So we set out to learn about the lived experience of people with COPD. We found things like 32% of people with COPD that we talked to had been in the hospital previously. We knew that most of them in the last year had gone to the ED, and it was care and services built around their needs that was going to move the needle and and not just a widget. So we first started with a coaching program because there was just so much we can do from the behavior change perspective that we thought could have an impact. And as we built that, we realized that like truly building a clinical model around the needs of people living with this condition was the path that we wanted to take. And the one that hopefully would deliver us to creating um, great outcomes for our patients, for our partners. And when Dr. Abby came on board, she brought so much experience from practicing in a rural environment to working in a disease management model um, to really just being an incredible clinician with, with such a focus on, on the patient and everything she's done Um, that she brought us to the next level. So we'd love to have Dr. Abby think, uh, maybe share a little bit about how she uh, envisioned the model evolving and uh, where we are today and where we think we can create value.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, as as we together envisioned what the the integrated solution would look like for these patients, you know, we really settled on, um, I like to call them the three Cs, but uh, three concepts that we were, that we believe were important to infuse into, you know, all of our uh, interventions and interactions with patients. The first one is the level of comprehensiveness that the model was going to bring in. And, you know, I had to think about it from both a chronic disease management hat as well as a provider hat, um, and really ask, you know, as as a practicing clinician still, what do I have the bandwidth to be able to provide a patient while they're in my clinic or in the hospital versus what do I wish I could do for them when they left and how do we really design a solution around that need um, that we we know providers are, are going to have? So we wanted to build out a comprehensive model that was not duplicative. Um, you know our intent was not to take over what the outpatient physician was doing or what the inpatient physician may have done if a patient was hospitalized, but what are all those things that physicians wish they could do, but don't have the time to do or the resources to do when that, that patient is in front of them. So we built out a model that was comprehensive from both a breadth of services perspective, as well as a depth of services perspective, in the sense that, you know, many things that are not what we as clinicians are taught in medical school and, you know, hospitals and health systems may not have the infrastructure investment into, um, we decided to to build out here at Welllink. So, you know, what are the workflows around social determinants of health? How can we provide patients with resources so that they can afford their medications better? How can we identify that they can't um, afford their medications? You know, how can we have our clinical coaches that are doing teach back on how to use those medications? Um, you know, all of those other factors that aren't directly related to medical management of the patient. We wanted to build that out in a comprehensive model. When I say breath, it's also, if a patient is acutely deteriorating, we all know that we just don't have enough physicians and those physicians just don't have enough time to necessarily get them to the right side of care and be able to treat them to avoid a hospitalization. So, you know, we've created clinical decision support and clinical escalation pathways to make sure that we're triaging patients appropriately and sending them to the right side of care so that they don't end up at the doorstep of the emergency room using them as the the primary service that that they're going to. uh, Because we find that inevitably that patient oftentimes tends to get admitted to the hospital. You have so many undifferentiated patients that are in the emergency room and just given time and resources, they they end up getting admitted. Second, we wanted to make sure our program was customized. So we have a unique perspective um, and a unique opportunity to be able to actually enter the patient's home virtually, but enter the patient's home. Uh, that's something that a provider doesn't even get the the opportunity to do. So once you go into the into the patient's home, you're better able to understand their living environment, their barriers, who are their caregivers and what do they go through on a day-to-day? Um, so we're actually designing a model, as we like to say, for an NS1. Um, every patient, basically receives a different version of our clinical model, one that is completely tailored to what their specific needs might be. Um, that's also a luxury that I, as a as a clinician, don't get to provide my patients in the short span of time I have with them, usually somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes at most. And then third, we wanted to make sure our model was continuous. So, you know, unfortunately, the way healthcare is designed and delivered at this time, the, the patient provider interaction is very much segmented. Um, you know, as an outpatient provider, I would see a patient maybe every three months, usually every six months or so. Um, as an inpatient provider, you obviously only see them when they're inpatient. And then most of the time, you don't know what happens once they get discharged from from the hospital system. There are many things that happen between those three months that the provider doesn't get Time to hear about, or, or just doesn't get the opportunity to to know about. A very good example is, I could start a patient with COPD on an inhaler medication that's a controller, and you know I'm eagerly awaiting them to come back in three months so I can see if that controller's working. Are they still having episodes of shortness of breath? Um, are they doing better? And then at the three month mark, I get to learn that they went to the pharmacy, they learned that they couldn't afford the medication and they never picked it up. So now I've lost three months where where I really could have been doing um, a lot for that patient. So I think it's the, the continuous nature of the model where we get to touch that patient much more frequently between those two visits and make sure that they're adhering to what that that provider actually wanted for that patient. That's a third piece that we really offer to make sure that that care delivery is effective. So we basically kept those three concepts in mind as we delivered this integrated solution and we continue to stay true to those concepts every time we evolve the model and and just continue to learn from our patients as well as our providers.
2: Well, I'm really interested to learn more about how an individualized and continuous virtual care program like this can elicit a higher level of patient engagement. I mean, we've seen that patient engagement is an increasingly important component of strategies to reform healthcare delivery. And the valuable evidence of the contribution that patient activation, which basically equates to the skills and confidence that equip patients to become actively engaged in their healthcare, It improves health outcomes, lowers costs, significantly impacts the patient experience in a positive way. And there's a growing body of evidence that patients who are more activated have better health outcomes and care experiences. And I'd like to understand how that impacts the totality of the patient's journey throughout the entire continuum. But we first need to figure out how to actually activate these patients and engage them in a co-accountable way. And from what I understand, your work has shown that a robust virtual care solution can provide a solution to patient activation that's been a challenge to healthcare providers for so, so long. So how has Welllinks addressed the challenge of designing a virtual care solution that works for this specific patient population? and, And are you also seeing an impact in patient activation that results in improved patient adherence to treatment protocols, healthy behaviors, and lifestyle changes?
1: Yeah, absolutely Eric. Um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, COPD is very unique in that it isn't necessarily a downstream effect of other disease processes that leads to COPD. The major driver of the disease is behavior. Um, so it's really the key focus of everything we do. And I think from a from a personal perspective, you know, prior to going to to med school, my degrees were in neuroscience and and psychology because I specifically have a a big interest in terms of what gets people motivated, what gets people to to change behaviors. And so it it was really a great union of that and what's required to help these types of patients. So behavior change is definitely in patient activation, which you, you keep referencing, is definitely the core of what we do. Um, so there's a couple different ways that we achieve this. First, we start by hiring the right staff. We have clinical coaches in our model. Um, they have clinical backgrounds as well as coaching backgrounds. Um, so, you know, they understand they have both the skill as well as the passion for behavior change, whether it's motivational interviewing techniques, whether it's cognitive behavioral type techniques, just understanding, you know, how do you meet the patient where they're at? How do you set goals that are appropriate? How do you touch them at the right frequency without overwhelming them and get them to, to change behavior? So we we hire according to that, that vision. Number two is we also have an internal training that incorporates some of the well Welllinks culture and what we're looking to achieve with these patients. You know How do we get to zero harm and improved quality of life for all of them? Um, so That training program also helps us in a more standardized fashion, uh, get patients activated. And then third, we have very measurable metrics in terms of um, behavior change. I think one of the things is oftentimes the concept of behavior change is considered a little bit more of the artistic side of medicine than the scientific side. I'm a strong believer that all intervention is and, and should be measurable. Um, so we have in, incorporated um, you know, the patient activation measure, which allows us to sort of tie a metric to that behavior change so that we can sort of continue to pivot our strategies and our interventions to make sure that as a cohort, we're bringing those patients up to a higher level of activation. Many studies over several decades have shown that increasing even one point in this patient activation level amounts to a, a Significant reduction in utilization and an improvement in medication adherence. So it's very relevant for what we're trying to do with this patient population. In terms of, you know, what have we seen that we've been able to accomplish? You know, we we had a pretty large study uh, in conjunction with the COPD Foundation, where we found that over 75% of patients that went through our program said well links really helped them better manage their COPD. Over 90% of patients found Welllinks to be valuable in understanding their disease process. Over 80% of patients said that our program really helped them learn about more about COPD um, than they've known before. And at the end of 12 weeks, when we reassessed these patients, over 85% remained enrolled in the program and highly motivated and activated. To give you a little bit more of an anecdotal story, just bringing it closer to home, on a one-to-one relationship, medical mistrust is something that we're seeing pop up a lot more. And it has, it definitely has a lot of implications when it comes to health equity. Um, You know, we see certain minority populations that suffer from medical mistrust the most. Um, Very recently, we had a patient in our program that had the same issue and, and we really couldn't even get them on the virtual platform to begin with. This is a patient who is a high utilizer and had not seen their their provider, PCP or pulmonologist in years for that reason, but slowly starting with the handoff from the provider on the inpatient side to our clinical coach who would call and text that patient in the beginning and develop a a stronger relationship. Um, Just very recently, she was willing to engage in a virtual conversation with pretty much her, her first interaction with the healthcare system in some form or fashion. And uh, we were able to convince her to go see her pulmonologist for the first time in years. So that to me is like the true measure of patient activation and how we were able to empower and motivate a patient. We know that seeing her pulmonologist is probably going to be the most impactful intervention that we can do for that patient. And the one thing that'll probably keep her out of the hospital and keep her healthy at home.
0: Well, we've talked a great deal about all of the systemic failures in our uniquely American healthcare system that are promoting care fragmentation. You know, the care delivery infrastructure is simply incompatible with population health because of these perverse fee-for-service incentives, and that's led us down this inexorable path of patient suffering and economic turmoil. Your premise is that the integration of a virtual solution for COPD that can be accessed from the home can help providers and health plans bridge these gaps in infrastructure, how can integrating virtual solutions bridge current gaps in care delivery fragmentation and build a foundation for partnership between patients, caregivers, providers, and health plans? And will the combination of incentives alignment and virtual care bring about the changes we need in the future to provide longitudinal comprehensive care that modulates with the patient's needs?
3: I was just last week, I was at a, a great summit called the Virtual First Care Summit up in Boston. And... I heard my friend Marcus Thigason from, from Impact, which is uh, an industry group from the Digital Medicine Society focused on virtual first care, start talking about competition. And it made me think a little bit. He was, he was saying that virtual first care models, uh, like the ones that we employ, but many others, introduced healthy comp- competition to the network. So if you're a payer looking at a bunch of brick and mortar care delivery, assets, uh, still operating fee for service, and in comes this virtual first provider, they should only exist in your market if they're doing a, a better job. But by whom? Right? I think, And I think the answer is by everybody. So are they creating better patient experiences? Are they delivering better outcomes? Are they doing so at a, at a more cost-effective way in, in saving you the payer money? Are they... Playing nice with the other providers and, and making sure that they're helping to coordinate care and, and not being an impediment to it, uh, and that concept of, of innovation and care models being competition for uh, I'm a big fan of uh, free market thinking. It just it just stuck out to me. So I'm going to go with that for a little bit and say that this introduces some some healthy care model competition into the environment. And you know when we think about our role in caring for people with, with chronic conditions as virtual first providers or, or, or health tech companies. Think about the role of the, eco, of the ecosystem first. And for us, a, a core part of our journey was working with other leaders who had done this before in the employer space or in the commercial space and other conditions through that group impact with the Digital Medicine Society and learning from them. Like where, where were the handoffs a little bit sticky or, or where were the tripwires and how can we all together map out these complex transition of care that impact a lot of different stakeholders and, and just do a better job of, of redesigning the care journey, but also the information and, and data journey uh, around the needs of, of the patient and the incumbents. And I think through that work, we've we've done a really good job of at least coming up with a hypothesis. and. We're testing that out pretty actively right now with the partners uh, that we're working with. And I know that many of the other companies uh, out there across this and other disease states are are doing similarly. Dr. Abbey, you can talk about an exciting study that we have ongoing at Hartford Healthcare here in Connecticut, where we're taking what what can be a very fragmented or challenging post-acute discharge pathway and becoming that connective fabric across it. Uh, and there's more examples uh, than that, but I, I do believe that virtual care can really have an important role in creating some connectivity across the journey in rethinking what's possible and ultimately redesigning the experience around the members and patients that we're all trying so hard to serve uh, from all angles in healthcare. I believe that people are not in healthcare for bad reasons. There's no malintent. Uh, there's just maldesign. So so I think it's a, it's a good first step just to focus on redesigning and rethinking and uh, operating outside of some of those frameworks.
1: I think the one other thing I would add is just, you know, as you had spoken about all the different touch points in healthcare, looking at it from the patient perspective, these patients are, you know, a lot of them are going in without necessarily the complete knowledge of what healthcare entails, who does what. What should they be doing at any given given point in time? I'm a provider, and you know, sometimes when I, I'm seeing a physician outside of my expertise, it can even be difficult for me to to understand all the things that uh, that I should be doing and everybody I should be following up with. You know, we've gotten to a point where healthcare has become so differentiated, and that starts, I think, from the moment you leave medical school for providers, for example, that there's just so many people involved that it can, it really inundates the patient. And I think when they get overwhelmed, you can lose that compliance and you can demotivate patients. So I think it's very important that whatever the predominant disease process may be that sort of taking over the patient's life, finding the right integrated virtual care partner, and then Having that partner as the point person for the patient walking through with them in the in the day-to-day is very important. So I can say, you know, when you look at the well-links model, we really think of it kind of like a hub and spoke model where we're the hub. We've developed the trust because we're talking to those patients multiple times a week, you know, so that they almost want to come and make sure that they're doing things right and make sure that you know, they're updating their their, their well-linked clinical coach on, on what's going on and maybe asking some additional questions that their provider didn't have time to answer. So I think fostering that relationship as, as a strong relationship that develops trust will help augment all of the other touch points that they have in, in the spokes. It'll help encourage patients in making sure that they continue to engage in all those different aspects that they should be engaging in. And we've seen that in a tangible way as we talk to patients, especially those that have multiple different providers that they're following up with and multiple different steps in their healthcare journey.
2: Well, speaking on that issue of trust, it makes me think about the level of mistrust we have between minoritized populations and their relationship with the healthcare system. I mean, we've seen for hundreds of years now that we've had systemic issues in our society that contribute to these social determinants of health that create adverse health outcomes. And as we wrap up our conversation, I'd love to get both of your perspectives on this important intersection between COPD and health equity. The influence of health disparities and socioeconomic status on the ideology and outcomes of chronic disease is most prevalently seen with COPD. I mean, there's this increasing prevalence of COPD in women, Patients with low socioeconomic status and minorities and recent mortality estimates suggest a growing socioeconomic divide with environmental risk factors for developing COPD being more common with people living in underserved and marginalized communities. And these risk factors include tobacco smoking, indoor and outdoor air pollution, and biomass fuel exposure. And we've seen a lot of COPD patients also that are older and live in rural areas, and they may struggle with transportation for traditional brick and mortar care, and and they struggle to access broadband connectivity that makes virtual care possible. So can you both provide a perspective on the COPD burden faced within these vulnerable patient populations? And how do you see health equity becoming a more prominent focal point in the move to value-based care?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I can speak, I think, also from some of my clinical background. So in my healthcare leadership journey. You know, I started off as a hospital CMO for a rural hospital up in in Northeast Ohio. So really saw the difficulties in terms of everything from recruiting specialists to those areas, to getting something like a pulmonary rehab center, uh, getting services out, out to those types of areas and transportation, et cetera. So We live in a time where even a patient who may not have transportation or a vehicle usually has at least a cell phone for communication. You know, it's just, it's become something that almost anyone possesses. It's the way we remain connected in today's world. So I think the way we see it is we try to find the simplest common denominator for these patients. So while we are a virtual care company, meaning, you know, we, we do something very similar to telemedicine in the sense that we have a we have a screen and we're trying to virtually go through a lot of these exercises and other interventions with patients. Oftentimes we're starting with a phone call uh, or a text message. That's to us, it's the the greatest common denominator that reaches the greatest number of people. So we really consider it a benefit to be able to do that because we reach people that wouldn't otherwise get any kind of care whether it's disease management whether it's support from a provider because they don't have the caregiver who can drive them in they don't have a vehicle the provider's too far maybe there's not even a specialist in their area so you know we we really start from from whatever we can get uh, the patients to engage with us on Um, and start developing that that relationship. You know, I I like to say that medicine doesn't follow technology. It's the other way around. And I think our mission at Wellink's is truly dedicated to that. So in whatever way a patient will engage with us, we're here to help. And we're here to help them get more sophisticated in, in terms of the ways that they can engage with other providers and other touch points. But we'll take whatever we can to be able to reach further than anyone has and and touch these patients that maybe don't get the opportunity to get the kind of care that they deserve.
0: Well, Jeff, Abby, thank you so much for this conversation. What a great topic and wonderful insights that you've shared with us. We're so glad we could have you on this episode today. And I'd love to have you share a little bit more about how our listeners can find out more about Welling's.
3: Daniel, Eric, it has been truly our pleasure to be with you today. So you know, the honor's on our side. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. We appreciate you lending the platform for us to be able to speak a little bit about COPD care and advocate for improvements and in innovation and payment model reform. And uh, we're so excited to see what the next decade brings. You mentioned before this $49 billion in COPD-related expense. Let's all commit to bring that trend line down. Uh, I'd hate to see it continue to increase. We can't afford it. Uh, and our patients, it's reflective of the burden that's being placed on them. So we have a commitment to, to really help here. You know, WellLinks is pretty easy to find. You can uh, find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or at uh, welllinks.com. That's www.wellinks.com. Connect with Abby and I personally uh, on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter. We are, we're pretty active and uh, would love to continue the conversation around COPD. There is a pretty neat event coming up, I think it'll be about a week or two weeks after the release of this episode. We'll be hosting a webinar uh, with AHIP on November 28th, where um, our friends from the payer community can come learn about some actionable strategies for uh, value-based care and innovation in clinical models for, uh, for the members that they're serving. So Please do be in touch and, and would love
2: to uh, speak more and, and help our partners solve this problem at large. Thanks again. Thank you, Jeff and Dr. Abby. It's been a pleasure in having you this week on the Race to Value. Thanks, guys.
1: Thank you. Pleasure being on.